Good morning. My name is Pastor Steve Lombardo. I'm one of the pastors uh, stationed over at the Sugar Grove campus. And Pastor uh, Travis asked if I could come and uh, open up the new series in Habakkuk that we're starting uh, this Sunday. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. I'd love to come over here uh, to Aurora. It's so exciting to see what God is doing in your midst, how God is working. I was just talking with Pastor Tim this past week, and he was here a couple weeks ago. And uh, we were just both uh, just filled with joy when we think of uh, the work that God is doing in and through you. Uh, that God is alive and well, and, uh, and, and really, in a lot of ways, uh, you're thriving here, and what an honor and privilege it is to be um, a sister church, to be one church together in different locations, and so I'm always happy when I get a chance to come on out. My family gets to come on out. They were in the first service, and so thank you for letting me be here, and I know you've had a lot of different speakers uh, over the summertime, and Travis will be back to continue Habakkuk. Um, but for today, thanks for allowing me uh, to be here. As the scripture was read already, we heard about uh, Habakkuk and his questioning of God. And the title of the message this morning is, is called, uh, Where Are You, God? Where Are You, God? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take uh, a 30,000 foot view of the situation that is going on um, leading up to the time of Habakkuk and when this prophet writes, and then I want to come down right into the ground in the day of Habakkuk and in your day and in our time and right in our lives today and ask that God would be our teacher this morning and that we would be encouraged and challenged by a challenging scripture. As you heard those scriptures read, those aren't a traditional scripture to be read where the prophet is just calling out to God, where are you, God? But that's what he's doing. So let's fast forward to the... Or Rewind back to the very beginning, okay? I need a little audience participation. Uh, in the beginning, God created the, help me, heavens and the earth. God created all that there is, Genesis 1-1. He created everything and it was good. Adam and Eve were good and they were naked and unashamed, the text says. Now the, that verse doesn't necessarily have all to do with the, the, the fact of being naked, but the being naked shows that they were without shame. They were open with one another, and they were open with God. They had a right relationship with one another. They had a right relationship with God, and it was good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. The devil, in the form of the serpent, comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, and he says, did God really say that you were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And he tempts them, and and they fall and they sin and now they hide because of their nakedness when God comes to the garden. They hide from God. Their relationships had been broken with one another and with God. Now there was something to hide and that something was sin. But God provided for Adam and Eve. Even as they left the garden, you remember he um, made them close. And then God provided, continued to provide for people as they would seek Him and turn to Him. God provided the ark for Noah to be saved and his family through the flood. And then God, in Genesis chapter 12, He intervenes into the world stage and He chooses a man, a man by the name of Abram. And He promises something to Abram. He promises him this, that you will become a great nation. You will become a great people. And that through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. We have 
different nations represented here this morning, don't we? And uh, it's an honor and privilege for me to be a part of a church that has many different tribes and languages and nations represented. And God is the God of all creation. God is the God of all tribes and of all peoples and of all languages and of all creeds. God Almighty is worthy to be praised. We read in the book of Revelation that there are people from all tribes and all lands that will sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is Jesus Christ. And that is the promise that Abram received, that through his family, that through his nation, all of the world would be blessed. It's through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, come to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again from the dead, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, the promise of Genesis chapter 12. And as the nation begins to grow, and as we hear this, read the story at the end of Genesis of Joseph, not too long ago we preached through uh, Joseph's life, the nation begins to get bigger and more numerous. And one of the leading powers of the day, the leading power of the day, Egypt, begins to notice that this group, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, are becoming greater in number. And so they are enslaved then. The, the, the land of Egypt, under Pharaoh, enslaves the people of Israel. And they are enslaved. God raises up a man to lead them out of slavery. What's that man's name that led the, the nation of Israel out of slavery of Egypt? Moses. God raises up Moses, and, and you remember the plagues that come upon Egypt, and the, the nation of Israel walks across on dry land between the waves of the Red Sea and goes on to the Promised Land. Now they have a, bump, a bunch of bumps along the way. They grumble about the conditions that they are living in, and the whole generation, because of God's judgment, has to die before they reach the Promised Land. It was in one of those occasions where the nation of Israel was complaining because they left Egypt and they forgot about the slavery and they forgot about the hard work and they forgot about the, 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 the deplorable situation. And they, they said, wasn't it better when we lived in Egypt? At least we had food next to the Nile River. We had different food to eat. And now all we got is this manna, manna, bread from heaven that was provided for them. And they grumbled against God and they grumbled against Moses. And God sent serpents into the camp to bite the people. One of the judgments of God in Numbers chapter 21. And the people are being bit and they're dying. And Moses cries out to God, Oh God, would you not turn from your wrath? Would you not stop this plague that has come among the people, this judgment of yours? And God says to Moses, put a serpent on a pole, a bronze pole, and raise it up. And all those who are sick, if they look onto that serpent... They will be healed. They will be made whole. And he does that, and the pestilence stops. The plague stops. and That's the nation of Israel. And they come into the land that God has provided for them, and they have judges that rule over them. Some good judges, some bad judges. Some judges that are good for some of the time, and some that are bad for some of the time. Samson being one of them. And the judges begin to rule the nation of Israel the best that they know how, but the people of Israel begin to complain again. This time their complaint is this. Why can't we be like all of the other nations? All of the other nations have kings. We want a king. Give us a king. Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, he says to the people, but if you have a king, the king will enslave you. The king will tax you. The king will 
bring oppression upon you. Don't do this. And the people said, we want a king anyway, Samuel. We don't care. And Samuel was despondent. Samuel was downcast. And he goes to God and he says, God, they want a king. They don't want me. I'm not good enough as a prophet anymore. They want a king. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, it's not about you. They're not despising you. They're despising me, God says. But God relents and he allows them to have a king. And the first king that is selected is a a king of physical beauty, a specimen, a man that is a head taller than all other men. And the first king of Israel, his name was what? King Saul. You guys are way faster than the first service. King Saul. King Saul comes, and even though he looks good, his heart is not good, and he disobeys God on numerous occasions. He disobeys God's representative Samuel on numerous occasions. And he sins against God so much so that he loses the throne and he loses the the kingdom to King David, who would become king. Now, David isn't a head taller than everybody else. Matter of fact, when he was selected amongst his brothers, he didn't look to be special at all. Samuel couldn't see it in David. But that's when God said this verse, amazing scripture that he gave us down the ages. He says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? Yes, the heart, inward. God looks at the heart. So David, he had the heart, and he was a mighty man of God, and he did battle. He was a warrior's warrior. He fought with his men, alongside his men, for his men, and for the nation of Israel, and for his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David, a mighty man who had the heart after God, but he also fell. He fell into sin. And let this be an encouragement to you today that God would use David, who had great sin in his life. I don't think anyone here in the room has as great of sin in their life as King David had, and yet David was called a man after God's own heart. Well, how bad? How bad was his sin? Remember King David, he saw a beautiful woman. He went and took that beautiful woman. He got her pregnant. And to cover up his adultery and to cover up the pregnancy, he had the wife, the woman's husband, Uriah, sent to the front lines of the battle to be killed. So he was an adulterer and he was a murderer. I I bet you can't match that resume. And yet, he is still called a man after God's own heart. God was at work in David, and David wanted to build then the temple. David had repented of his sin. He had turned in, in, in sorrow. Psalm 51, you can read, is God, his repentance before the Lord. And he's going to build the temple, but God says, no, no, you got too much blood on your hands, David. This is for your son to do. This is for Solomon to do. So Solomon, who is known as a wise man, and he is a wise man, he, he builds the temple for God, a place where God can dwell with his people, right here, with his people. But he's also not only wise, Solomon is worldly. He takes numerous wives from many of the different cultures of, of the peoples around them, the pagan uh, lands around the nation of Israel and the pagan people who were in the promised land before Israel had gotten there, the, the people who worshipped Baal, the sun god, the people that worshipped Ashtoreth, uh, the goddess god of the moon. The worship entailed a sexual deviation 
in their worship, and they began to, in the nation and the land of Israel, raise up in the high places, so in the lands, uh, in the hills, to set up these Ashtoreth poles that had an image of Ashtoreth, this goddess of sex and a goddess of uh, fertility, and began to practice the worship thereof, so as if to gain better crops in their in their harvest and to have the gods smile on them all the while forgetting about the God who made all that there is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the nation of Israel began to go into a downward spiral of this false worship. So much so that the kings began to fight with one another and the nation of Israel was separated into two different kingdoms. You had the nation of Israel to the north, and then you had the nation of Judah in the south. And the nation of Israel then falls at the hands of the Assyrians. Let's pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17, here we read these words of the fall of the northern kingdom, Israel. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every hill and every, under every green tree. There they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them and they abandoned all the commandments of the lord their god and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an asherah and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served baal and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the lord provoking him to anger therefore the lord was very angry with israel and removed them out of his sight none was left but the tribe of judah only They're in dire straits. Downward spiral. God who had been at work all throughout their history, through our history, the beginning of time, they had now forsaken God and and the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. But things were going downhill also for Judah. Verse 19 of 2 Kings uh, 17. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. So here we have the remnant left, the southern kingdom of Judah, who is also beginning to walk in those ways, the ways that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Now, the, 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 the scene begins to change when something very interesting happens. One of the kings, evil king Ammon uh, in Judah, dies, and his son becomes king. His name is Josiah. Josiah was made king when he was eight years old. Eight years old. I have an eight-year-old daughter, and uh, it'd be interesting to see what kind of kingdom she would make uh, as an eight-year-old kid. It'd probably be pretty cool. Lots of uh, uh, prancing ponies and candy and fun like that, but probably not a very tough nation, okay? So Josiah was eight years old, and he finds himself as king um, in Judah. And he, he begins to grow, and he begins to see that people are worshiping all these other gods. And he says, well, we have this big temple here, the temple that Solomon built. We haven't used that for years. Why is this temple here? What is this temple for? And he begins to do the research, and he says, I, don't, I think we're off here as a people. Let's clean out the temple. Let's rebuild the temple. And he sends a group of guys to do this, and they go into the temple. This is amazing. They go into the temple, and they find a book. And the book is the law. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they bring out the law. They bring out the book that they found. And they start to read it. And they say, the king's got to see this. The king's got to hear this. And they bring it to Josiah. He's older now. He's 26 years old. And they begin to read it to him. And when they read it to him, he begins to weep. He begins to cry because they had forsaken the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had forsaken the God that had freed them from slavery in Egypt. They had forsaken the God that had created them. They had forsaken the God who had led them into the promised land. They had forsaken the God of David instead to worship false pagan gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. And so he begins to reform the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he begins to make changes, and he tears down these high places, these false gods where these idols are made, and he tears them down. And he puts to death the false prophets as well. There's a revival that begins to happen. That's what only can, the word that can be used to describe what's happening is an Old Testament revival as people are turned back to the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh. When they're turned back to him as rightful creator God, Lord of heaven and earth. It's an amazing time. Now, in this time, there's three major players in this section of the ancient Near East. We have Egypt to the south. Egypt was a, a powerhouse, but they were in decline. We had Assyria to the north. They were in decline, but a powerful, brutal people themselves. And then we had the Babylonians or the, or the Chaldeans, and they were on the rise. They were a brutal people, a strong people, a conquering people, and they become part of this story next week. And then you had little Judah. Little Judah is like nothing, okay, compared to these powerhouses. Judah is so small. It's so, it, it's nothing. And uh, the Pharaoh at the time, his name is Nico. The Pharaoh wants to go through Judah, and he's going to do battle against another army, and he's going to go through there, and he, he runs into Josiah. And Josiah's like, you can't bring your, your army through here. Well, Pharaoh, Nico, says, are you kidding me? This little Judah, who nobody even knows who you are. I can go through here. I can do whatever I want. And they get in battle together. And Josiah is killed. And his remains are brought back to Jerusalem. 
Josiah's son comes to power and he is basically taken off to captivity in Egypt. Then one of his other sons comes to power and he begins to practice not the ways of his father but the ways of his grandfather and he reintroduces the worship of Baal and the worship of Ashtoreth and the worship of these false gods. And once again, Judah begins to downward spiral, go downhill as generations before them had. Now we come to our guy Habakkuk. Because it's in these dark days of spiraling down that Habakkuk writes these words, the words that were just read for us today. And let me just pray and ask that God uh, would bless us as we study these words. Lord God, I pray, Father, that you would be with us this morning as you already are. Your presence is here, Holy Spirit. Thank you. And I pray that your words would speak to us this morning and you would challenge us and spur us on to live for you even when we can't see your plan. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when God seems absent, we must do a few different things. Let's start here. When God seems absent, we must reacquaint ourselves with a little-known prophet. Now, we don't know much about him. We know about the time in which he lived. That's what we just talked about, the time in which he lived. But we don't know uh, what he did for a living. We don't know who his family was. We don't know much about him. But we, knew, we know more about the message of Habakkuk. And we see it here in these first four verses. Do you have the text in front of you? See if you can spot these phrases. Israel's in bad shape. And Habakkuk says this. He calls it violence and sin and destruction. He says the wicked surround the righteous and there is no justice. The law is paralyzed. Israel's in bad shape. It's, it's, it's going to shambles. And that's part of the message, but the second part of the message, the, the, the tougher even part of the message is this, is that God doesn't seem to care. See, in the text, Habakkuk says, I cry for help and you don't hear. I cry violence and you don't save. These are big words coming from the prophet. Israel's in bad shape, yeah, but God doesn't care. You don't care, God. You're not at work, but God was at work. And what you'll be going through next week, starting at verse 5, is hearing about the work that God has in store for Judah. And it's, a, it's not a comforting work. Let me warn you, this is a tough book. All of this is tough. But just look at verse 5, just to get a little taste of it. God's answer to Habakkuk is, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God is at work. God is on the move, but Habakkuk cannot see it. Have you been there? Have you been in a place in your life where it seemed like God wasn't around, that God wasn't hearing you, that God wasn't involved in your life, and only then to get away from that for a time and then look back and you see that God was there? And God was doing some things, but at the time, you couldn't see him, and you asked even that question, where are you, God? I married my wife, Stephanie, in seminary when I was studying up the road at Deerfield and Trinity, and uh, we got married and were working on our family and finishing up and was so excited after seminary to go 
church planting, to plant a church, to start a new church in Virginia, in a Virginia Beach, Chesapeake area. The, the goal, the purpose was to reach uh, men and women uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically the military men and women. There's a big, huge military population there. My brother was one of that, them and his family. My brother was a Navy SEAL and wanted to reach out to that. And God just put everything in place and felt like everything was going well. And so we got done with seminary and, and uh, had a little baby boy, three-month-old, and we, we got up and got the U-Haul truck and drove out to um, Virginia. And uh, we got out there and uh, just poured myself, ourselves, into the work of starting a church, starting a small group, uh, reaching out to neighbors, going door to door to thousands of people's doors, buying mailings to send out to people, using my last money. We had no money uh, to, to try to start a church, and we had uh, to depend on people sending us monthly checks to live. And we lived in a garage, above a garage, in a barn. That's where we lived, and, and we... We were happy because this was what God called us to do. And then uh, the, the big day came for the launch of the first service. And uh, I had ordered pizza. Um, we, got, I, we met in buildings much like this building. Um, I had gotten that. God had gotten that. And we didn't even have to pay for it. And, uh, and so I had ordered pizzas. So we're going to have a worship service and pizza. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, you'd go to that, wouldn't you? So I ordered 40 pizzas. For our launch, um, I had, was going to order 80 pizzas, but I thought, well, you know, if we get 150 people, 40 pizzas will be fine. That's what I'm thinking. So we get to the time of the service, and nobody's coming. Nobody's, where's everybody? I got 40 pizzas sitting in the back, and, uh, you know, 22 people came to that first service. Now, this is to show you how messed up I was in my head and heart at the time. During that service, there was a woman who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. She says, I believe in Jesus. She had the gospel for the first time. And God, I believe, saved her. And yet, I was not rejoicing in that salvation. All of heaven was rejoicing. That's what Scripture says. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner turns and repents and is saved. And I should have been rejoicing with heaven. But no, I was mourning because I had more pizzas than people. Where are you, God? This is your work. This is for you. This is your gospel. And, and as a side note, God was working on me to make me uh, the right person to serve him. And the message that I needed to hear was, uh, Steve, God doesn't need you. He can use the rocks to praise him. He doesn't need you. That's what I needed to hear. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't need to hear that message. Maybe you need to hear that God says to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've given myself for you. I've loved you as a sinner. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Maybe you need to hear that message, but what I needed to hear was, you're nothing. God's everything. God can do whatever he wants. I was holding God in my debt. I did all these things. Where are you, God? But now, looking back on that, the pizzas, more than the people, all of the situations that happened, I see that God was at work, that God was doing a thing. And he was doing a thing in and through me to change me for his glory. Have you been there? This is part of the maturing process as a Christian, isn't it? 
It's dealing with these times when you can't see what God is doing, but yet you hang on, you trust Him, you hope in Him. So when God seems absent, then number two, we must recognize that our world is filled with similar problems. Habakkuk's day is not so different from our day. These problems include, number one, man's sinful actions. Man's sinful actions. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? First, from the world. Since 2011, 50 to 80 percent, roughly an estimate, 50 to 80 percent of Christians in Iraq and Syria have been displaced, have been pushed out of their home, have lost all that they have. Along with that number, 500,000, half a million people, most of whom are Christians, have been murdered and killed. That's two and a half, three auroras wiped out for following Christ. We live in a world that's evil. We live in a world that's scary. We live in a world where the devil does have some power. That does, he does exude some authority. He's not in control, but he's got some power. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. He's, he's got some power. In the U.S., how about this? Since 1973, where abortion became legal, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decided that, that it was okay to abort a baby. More than 60 million babies have been killed. 60 plus million. We have problems. Man's sinful actions have brought about these problems. And here's another problem. I'm going to ask it because... Habakkuk asked it. Here's the other problem. God's seeming absence. God's seeming absence. You talk about persecution, and some of you have experienced persecution for your faith. My dad works with the Native Missionary Movement of India. They work primarily in northwestern India to bring the gospel to unreached, unchurched people groups. In their monthly newsletter from a year ago, we heard of a story of one of their pastors who was burned alive to death with his two small boys in his car. Radical Hindus who don't want the name of Jesus to be spread in the northwest province of Punjab surrounded his car, lit it on fire, and waited outside the car door with machetes ready to chop them to pieces if he and the boys got out. They didn't get out, and they burned alive in that car. Where are you, God? In Habakkuk's time, there was revival. Things were going well. Josiah had brought about all these major reforms to glorify God and to honor Him. And then Josiah gets killed, and his sons take over, and they lead the country again back downhill. God, where are you? One of my first uh, counseling, care times as a pastor, as a young pastor, was a woman in our congregation who had an eating disorder. And she was in uh, the hospital. And I went in to visit her, and she'd wasted away to about 70 pounds. And, uh, the nurse was in there for a time, and, and talking with her, she says she had anorexia, eating disorder, and they said they, they commonly call eating disorders Ed. Ed, a personality, because there's such a strong voice within the person to, to not eat the food that you're not going to, 
look the way that you should or feel the way that you should. Ed, demonic, scary, disease. And this woman, through her tears, she said to me, does God even hear me? And me as a young pastor, of course God hears you. Of course God hears you. And she said, does he care? Does he care? God, where are you? Now, we know the story of Habakkuk. We can look at the rest of the pages. And we can look at the whole story of the Bible. And we can see how Christ is the center of the Bible. And that he takes care of sin on the cross. And he rises again from the dead. And we have our hope in Christ. We have that. Habakkuk didn't have that at the time. And he didn't have the story. So what do we do? What do you do when you find yourself in that place, the space where God seems absent? Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're waiting for a job. You've done all the work. You've filled out your resumes. You've went door to door, and you're still not getting the job. And there's some things that have come up, but, but they're not enough to provide for you and your family, and you're still working hard, and you're in that space. You're in that place where God seems to be absent no matter how long you cry out to Him. Or you're at odds with somebody in your family that uh, there's a relationship that has been damaged and broken and no matter how much you pray and no matter how much you reach out and no matter how much you forgive, things aren't being repaired and you're saying, God, where are you? Or you or someone you love close to you is diagnosed with an illness doctor says that you have cancer and you're in that space where you're asking the question does God hear me and does God care so what do we do that's the last point when God seems to be absent we must renew the prescription that God provides and here's his prescription three parts to it the first part is honesty being honest with God about your struggles. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels, outside, of course, of Christ's death and resurrection, is found in Mark chapter 9. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you, because in it we hear the honesty of, of, of a man who comes to Jesus asking for his son to be healed. His son has been uh, possessed by a demon that, uh, that uh, Well, let me read the story so you can hear. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, that's the spirit, the demonic power in the boy, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now listen to Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus says, you just said to me, if, if I can, 
All things are possible to those who believe. Now, what's this man going to say? Is he going to jump up and say, I believe. I have the faith. Oh, no, he's honest before God and before Christ right here. And he says this. The man says to him, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. This, there's an honesty there that you believe, but, man, I got some places in my heart that, that don't believe. I got some places in my heart that are, are, are coming along slowly. And this man says that to Jesus. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus healed the boy. Because it's not a question of how much faith you have. Listen, the question is not how much faith you have. The question is, who is your faith in? That's the question. So that Jesus says faith as big as a mustard seed can move mountains. Jesus says anyone who believes uh, it is possible. How can that happen? Because it's not how big your faith is. It's who your faith, even if it's small, is in. If it's in Christ, all things are possible. So be honest before God. Be like this man who, who, who prayed and, and, or confessed to Jesus. I believe, but help my unbelief that you would talk to God and pray to God and be honest with the Lord and bear your soul to Him. If anything, we learn from Habakkuk, we learn this, to be honest. He's saying to God, you're, you're not saving, you're not helping. Where are you? There's hard things going on. I mean, that's a strong way to talk to God Almighty. It's not disrespectful. It's, it's, it's bearing your soul to God. Bear your soul to the Lord. He knows what's in your heart already. So be honest as part of this prescription. So honest with God, but here's the second part of being honest, to be honest with God's people. Honesty with God involves honesty with others. To bear one another's burdens, as the scripture says. Google this afternoon um, the, the love or the one another's of the New Testament. To bear one another's burdens, to love one another. All these one another's that we're to do life together and help one another and be honest about where we're at in our faith. This isn't a, a, a social club. This is life with Christ. Forgiveness, yes, but struggles, yes. Joy, yes, but pain, yes. And so how many people here are involved in a small group? I see your hand. Anybody in small group? Okay. In small group, I'm, I work with small groups, and... Uh, I'm a big proponent of it. This is where we encourage you to be honest with one another. To have a place where you can come and be honest about your walk with God and the struggles that you might have. And maybe you're at this place where things aren't making sense and God doesn't seem to be showing up. And you can be honest, not only with God through prayer, but honest with God's people in your small group. Three years ago, we started a, a, new, a couple new small groups uh, in Yorkville. I just had come to Village Bible Church, and, uh, and so we started a small group. And we had come from a couple of other small groups in the past where we were for a long time at a church, and we had deep relationship with the people in our small group. We had done life together. We were raising our kids together, you know, all that good stuff. And so we, that was a pretty special thing that we had. And now we're at a new church and a new place and, and in a new group. And so our group met, and uh, it was meeting, and it was painful, okay? It was painful. We we go through the study together and we talk about it, and then everybody kind of gives their opinion about what the study was. And all right, time for refreshments. Let's eat some snacks. And 
and I didn't want to go to small group. I'm the small group's pastor at Village Bible Church, and I didn't want to go to my own small group, okay? That happened from about September to January. In January, something awesome happened. The Holy Spirit moved, and he moved through the honesty of one of the people in the group. As we were meeting, one of the women spoke up about how she had struggled with depression. And she's been on different medications, and they couldn't balance the medications, and she wants to be off the medications, but she's bad when she's off the medications, and how that has affected their family life, and how that affected even her spiritual walk with God, how it's hard to go into the sanctuary and worship God, and, and the pain that she was in, the stress that she was in, and something began to happen. The Lord, the Lord, he's always there, but he showed up in a special way that night, and we gathered around her and prayed for her. She was open and honest, and you know what? After that prayer time, and when we were having our snacks and different things, I, I looked over to the far side of the room, and I saw... Uh, different other different women from our group over there around her and sharing their same stories of how they went through times of depression, how they were struggling with the same things and they were being open and honest and they were bearing their souls. And this is what we're called to do as people of God, not to play games, but to be honest and to be honest about the dark times. We can be honest with the good times. Anybody can be honest with the good times, but it's in the hard times, in the struggle that you would be honest with God and honest with one another. That's God's prescription for how to weather the storm of the absence, the seemingly absent God. Second part is humbleness. Staying humble and knowing that God is in charge. Part of being humble is that you step away and you say, God's on the throne, not me. Habakkuk, we'll see in in the following weeks, as he speaks to God, he backs off of the strong language of the first four verses. And he comes around to, you'll see later, where he's really humble before God. And God, you can do all things. And God, you do all things well. And God, you are to be praised. He humbles himself, much like Job, who starts off strong against God. Job is suffering all these different things. And he says, God basically comes to, how could you do this? He doesn't sin against God, but he he really is calling out to God, and then God shows up, and he is humbled by it. So humble yourself in these times. Now, that is the exact opposite thing that our flesh would want to do in those times, and it's the exact opposite thing that the world would tell us to do in those times. The, The world would tell us, and our own flesh would want to rise up and do this. How could you, God? How dare you, God? I've given you all this, God. And you've given me that, and you're not humble before the the Lord. But that you would rather humble yourself and say, God, I don't understand, and I don't know. But I agree with Job. Even if you slay me, still I will trust you. And that's the last part of the prescription this morning, that we would trust in him. We'd grab a hold of God instead of other things. We don't know much about Habakkuk. We know a lot about the time in which he lived, but we don't know about him. But here's what his name means. Habakkuk's name means he embraces or he wrestles. And I thought about that in my studies this week. Who is the person that wrestled with God? Help me out. Anybody remember in the Old Testament? It starts with a J and ends in Achab. Jacob, good, yes, there you go. Jacob wrestled with God. God showed up at Bethel 
where Jacob was, and Jacob wrestled with God. It was the angel of the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who is there, the Lord, wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob asks for the Lord's name, and he refuses to give it to him. And Jacob says, I'm not going to leave unless you bless me. And he's holding on to God, and he's wrestling with God, and he's got a hold of God. And in those times, loved ones, those times where God seems to be distant, where you would cry out to him, where are you, God? Those are the times that we are to run to him and go into him by faith even stronger through his word and through people around us that you would build up your faith and your trust and your hope in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that Jacob wrestled with. And it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be fun, and it's going to leave some scars. Jacob wrestled with God, and from that day on, the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. Christians who have experienced the pain of life walk with a limp. Why? Because they held on to God even when it was hard. Now we get to rejoice even more than Habakkuk. Habakkuk couldn't see his day coming to an end. He surely couldn't see the Messiah coming. We get to see all that by God's people. His blessings upon us we have been witness to the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the one and only who has came and he, he made his dwelling with us. He tabernacled among us. He became us to be sin for us to give us salvation. And we have behold, beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. So rejoice today, loved one. You say, where is God? I can point you to the cross. I can point you to the empty tomb. And even though you might not think he's present, he is. So be honest. Be humble. And trust in him today.